KFBS. Sitrep with Christopher Lee. Hello there, and welcome to the final series at the Sitrep Roundtable with me, Christopher Lee, and guests here in central London. At the table this week, Michael Codner, a former naval person and director of the Military Sciences Programme at the Royal United Services Institute from the Centre for International Security and War Studies at the University of Salford, the naval historian, Professor Eric Grove. The editor of Defence Analysis, Francis Tusa and the Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson. And it is to the preamble to the Defence Review that we turn our attention this week. We're spending the rest of the hour looking at the upcoming Strategic Defence Review. What is it? Is it possible to get it right, however important it is? What will happen to each service, the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, the Army, the Royal Service? And let's not forget the fringe, robotics, intelligence, information, the media. And, of course, those things we never plan for. For example, a nuclear confrontation in the Middle East, or don't we? Let's start with the definition. Um, Francis, defence review was once thought to be a, almost a taboo subject, wasn't it? We don't, didn't actually talk about reviews because it meant we got it wrong before. Well, certainly through the 90s, they were never defence reviews. They were white papers given assorted names. Um, I think especially now, the realisation, even the previous government, that it had been 11, 12 years since the, the previous serious look, the time had come. Also, just it was patently obvious things, procurement, the budget, you name it, was so out of kilter you could not actually um, avoid using the term. It's strange, anybody. Um, Michael, the, I remember in 1990, the SDR was called Options for Change. I mean, why did we think options for change at the time? Do you remember? I do indeed. Um, and one of the problems at that stage was the huge uncertainty as to the future. And one could almost say there's some justification in not saying this is the review that will define how Britain will um, go militarily um, in the post-Cold War uh, future because, as I say, it was so uncertain um, that that's no excuse and the review was conducted very much um, sort of sub rosa um, uh, and, um, but nonetheless it was a pretty thorough review with huge reductions. Right. At the in, time in I called it the not-a-defence review. The what? <laughs> the not-a-defence review because it's, it clearly was. In fact, it had mm. about three phases mm-hmm. but and, it, and, it, and it was a defence review in all but name. Of course, now they're calling it the Strategic Defence and Security Review. So we're now the SDSR, which is defence from the SDR. But we call everything security but on the front be, of it. To be fair, about one thing you say, the nervousness of review means you got it wrong last time. At least with a new government, and actually a coalition government, they have one time, one time perhaps for one year, to actually do the good old-fashioned Soviet thing and blame everything on the previous bunch. Mm. Uh, who were there for 13 <laughs> years? At least, you, you can't do that five years into, perhaps you're, you're in your second term. In the first year, you have the luxury of saying, of course, in opposition, we couldn't do anything. We're now in government, and we recognise that the previous bunch of jokers made such a mess of it, we are here to sort it out. But as I say, it's a one-shot Although work. the interesting thing is that the head of the, of the security section of the, of, the, of the Cabinet Office last week at the Royal Air Force Air Park Conference was saying that actually there's a certain amount of continuity. That, this, that this idea of defining national security in a broad sense is going to be continued by the present government uh, in, terms of, in terms of energy, in terms of... Uh, uh, in terms of climate change and so on. So 
the attempt is being made to give certain elements of continuity, but yet, uh, as we've just heard, there is going to there are going to be. Some I mean, there changes. are certain fixed things anyway, like we import ninety eight percent of our things by sea. That doesn't change the fact that we burn up so much energy in in quantitative terms. So there are certain fixed. So things. energy security is an incident that we yeah, have to. You've got to live with. Yeah, uh, it's there. You, and, and there are other fixed items as well, like. Uh, piracy, which is going on, and, 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 and the, the security of, of, of maritime uh, sea lanes. Those are fixed things. Fr- Francis, how do you... I mean, I don't want to get too much ahead of us ourselves, um, but how does a defence review, by whatever name, how does it cope with things like piracy or whatever, which seem to me almost incidental to what you expect people to be trying to do this time? Um, actually, the strange thing is, and uh, referring back to the same conference I went to, the Airpower one last week, I think there is too much effort being spent on trying to drill down to minutiae of what should a company, should have marines do in the case of this? Mm. Actually, focus on the higher level um, assets. And actually, two RAF guys at this same conference said, fundamentally, if we forget, what we're here to do is deliver violence. That is, that is the end result. Once we get that... We've actually sorted most of the stuff out. If you design a general-purpose frigate, it's not that difficult. It will be able to handle uh, convoy escort, task force escort, and piracy as well. Um, And I think it is my worry about this being a defence and security is we're going to start to see massive dilution of what defence is meant to do, and suddenly it's going to be... um, Whereas we understand that faced with a flood, boss castle or something, the military will turn up. They're going to start defining whole new loads of rules yep, and missions true. which require training and everything, which will dilute the fundamental task, which is delivery of violence. I'm hoping, in fact, that what people will see when they look back at this is that when we first had the national security strategy with the last government, it was all very general and it was all this sort of, this sort of wishy-washy stuff. Then defence came in the second iteration of it, and now what we're seeing under the new government in the third iteration of it is hopefully, and I think it will will be a much more hard-headed view of where violence and defence, as you Michael, might say, comes in. Michael Codner, there is there's another side of it. I mean, if we go back to 94, 1994, when we had um, uh, Frontline First, which was another defence review of sorts, wasn't it? Um, stage, it w- stage three. Stage three, it was, yes. <laughs> it always struck me that what they were, their biggest problem then, they, they, they were in a period where they were stuffed for money. Mm. And so, therefore, you rather like now... And you had to, uh, that's a dangerous thing to do because if you're trying to think out 40 years where you want to be as a society, as a government, as a country, uh, what you're doing now is short term. And that's not, and Francis was making the point, that's not what you do with a company of Royal Marines. Yes, I, I, um, Frontline First uh, came right in the middle of the period when uh, policy was shifting very much from um, a an armed forces that was focused on its contribution to NATO and um, and that's what defined it and if it did other stuff, used that stuff to do it to what was concluded in the Defence Review in 1998 that the, that the um, force structure should be based on what you do overseas and we'll lend that to NATO if it's needed and you're halfway through that process and I say that process to some extent was driven by uncertainty as to where uh, the end of the Cold War was going and we could have had a much better review, more like SDR um, at about 1996 or 1995. If I could make a general comparison, the the first three reviews post um, the Cold War 
were actually about Can we date this <coughs> cool one? So 1991, 1990, 91, 91, 93, and then some yeah. mini one, uh, 95. They were all about peace dividend saving money, first and foremost. It was present the MOD with this is your budget, and now please go away and come up with something that looks really nice in print that justifies what we're doing. They were absolutely money led, not policy led. SDR was policy led. And then again, referring back to this air power conference the other week, it was admitted clearly the view was, let's do the strategy and the resources will catch up with the strategy. So it was an entirely unfunded review. Um, the, this time round, I think you've got to be perfectly honest, with a £178 billion government deficit, which will still be on the best terms £135 billion next year, no matter how often anyone says this is a policy-led review, it isn't. It is about money. Uh, the country is bust. And... Actually, the more people try and say it's about policy, um, it's committing slightly the um, deceit of the early 1990s. Let's be honest, the country doesn't have the money. That's true, actually, uh, uh, in, in general terms. But I think that they're trying to decide what they need to do within these financial constraints sure. because it's concentrating yeah. their mind. If the but financial constraints is concentrating people's minds a lot. I mean, that's not actually an unreasonable um, approach, bearing in mind that we are an island that's one of the safest um, I'm, nations I'm, I'm in the world. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying um, that getting yes, definitional. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we don't spend 1.6% of our GDP on defence, which most um, first world nations do. We spent 2.2. And the difference isn't to make us safer at home. The difference is uh, the money we spend on our exploits internationally for whatever reason they are for, and that's one of well, the big questions. Well, partly to make us safer at home. We spend them on. Well, you could argue that, but you could equally argue... Well, the government has, has argued that well, they the have, past ten but years. They've, they've argued that to some extent. They've talked a lot about force for good, which is not quite the same thing. There are implications there. But uh, it's that 0.4%, um, that uh, which needs to be set if what you're talking about is operations of choice that service uh, this wider influence, what? interest, moral... But you see, what worries me about force for good Gillian. talking is you actually get into this business of not doing what Palmerston said we should do, which is to make certain we are focused totally on our, on interests. our interests. And that is something that Actually, the current coalition mm. is talking about. Sure. It's talking, there's a new emphasis on interests. But, they haven't, wa- but they haven't walked away from it. They've used the word force for good. They've it talked about good. this mm. liberal conservative policy. The liberal word mm-hmm. means force for good, doesn't it? But it's but also, but wait a minute, three weeks ago, I was uh, listening to the Prime Minister when he went to um, Afghanistan. He was saying to the guys there, don't forget, this is, I mean, basically, it's paraphrasing. Um, where you are is um, a sort of an extension of High Street Ken. His first gaff. Isn't it yeah. a remarkable thing to have said? Uh, for a bloke. High Street Ken, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, I'm but sorry. But actually, this is going back to force for good and, and also trying to sell this thing, which is we're safer in, in the UK because we're in Afghanistan, which actually is quite a long thing to, to, to stretch where actually what what would be better we'll don't go into it because we might cover that some other time yeah. is actually Pakistan that really matters and this is where yeah. the whole business of focusing on what is in our interests is terribly important well as we were saying in the program last week for example that if you um, that Pakistan is all about Afghanistan or, um, and that's what you've got to look at it takes a long time to put you couldn't put that in a defence review um, it, 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 it is a much more sort of complex uh, matter than that. Well, and also it's not far enough ahead because that may that problem <coughs> may go away in twenty or thirty years. How long has anybody know? How long have defence reviews taken to change structures? 
things you normally change before they have too much time time to do it. Oh, the Defence Review of 57-58 changed structures enormously and set the context of the late 50s and the early 60s. Then the Defence Review of the mid-60s, uh, culminating in 60-67... This is coming back from east of from Europe. East of Syria, east of Syria, yes, yeah. and, that, and that very much set the context for the, for, uh, for the 1970s. But there was a purpose there. There was something to do, wasn't there? Well, to, to withdraw to Europe, because NATO's flexible response strategy regarded quite a considerable defence commitment. So the Royal Marines stopped fighting in Borneo and started, fighting and started preparing to fight in Norway. Yeah. Um, this was... F- th- th- but the trouble was that by the after a, a considerable increase in defence expenditure in the late 70s and the early 80s, it was quite clear that that increase could not continue. So we get the John Knott exercise, which actually increases the emphasis. This was 1981, June 1981. 81, yes, and and that and that continues for the rest, really for the rest of the Thatcher government, actually. And then, of course, you get the end of the Cold War, and rather reluctantly the Ministry of Defence has got so used in the previous 20 years to concentrating on the NATO commitment, for many, for several years it says, no, we won't pay for forces for anything outside defence of the UK and, and the Alliance. We'll do Defence Role 3, which was out of area, uh, with other things. But then in the Strategic def- Defence Review it changes again. I suppose you might say that the SDR was one of the longer... was was quite a long-lasting revision of our but policy. It's arguably one of the best world. MOD documents for the past 20 years. I say, just a shame. But then it was they unfunded. Fun- they didn't fund it. Um, well, I mean, it was funded, but the aspirations... <laughs> not were, enough. <laughs> no, the aspirations in, uh, were very much on, uh, on efficiency, um, uh, um, uh, uh, reform of acquisition, all these things were going to deliver 15% of savings in building the kit, which was going to be very expensive. It was predicted at the beginning it would be overpriced, and, and that's the problem. And this is a problem for this government, if they pin uh, savings as the basis for funding, they want to have a very, very low-risk funding plan, assuming they won't make the savings they want by cutting um, headquarters costs and all that. And actually, Sex State has already said in at least two speeches that he hopes not to do massive cuts of the axe around, but it will be through efficiency savings, and, okay, you can go through and find some. Has he actually used the term Occam's razor yet, or is he going no, to... No, but he said they wouldn't slimy slice, yes. um, which is Which, which is, good, is the Italian which is, which is good, um, <laughs> however, um, quite frankly, the services will go for slimy slicing, yeah. um, which is precisely the situation we see in the Grey report from last year. Yeah. Michael. O- Occam's razor would, is about using less words, and that yes. would put us all out of business. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yes, well, that's happening as well. Um, listen, um, I, I was reading something talking about uh, wordy documents. I was reading something from Chatham House, uh, I think it was the end of last year, and there's one phrase in it, and it said, Defence policy, planning and analysis in the United Kingdom has reached a state of organisational, bureaucratic and intellectual decay. Uh, I'm not quite sure you reach a state of decay, but anyway, there you are. What do we reckon on that? True? Pretty fair, yeah. Mm, I I don't know, actually. I think I'm more optimistic. I think I detect uh, a change in... I mean, despite all this stuff about some of salami slicing, etc., I do detect a change in tone. I mean, the, the at the speech at Roussy that, uh, that the Secretary of State made a couple of weeks ago, I mean, he did say that there are going to be no more sacred cows. My friends of the Fleet Aeron think, wonderful, we'll abolish the RAF. But I don't think he quite meant that. I think... But it's possible that the army, for example... I mean, it's an important point, this, actually. The army, which, of course, is trying madly to emphasise the Afghanistan thing. And lost. But when, Exactly. But when you think... Think about it. 100,000 men in the army, right? 
plus the Royal Marines, and we can deploy 10,000 no, of them. the Royal Marines not in the army. Uh, well, well, yeah. I, well, I said plus the Royal Marines to the army. Oh, and including the Royal Marines, we, we can deploy 10,000 of them. One brigade, virtually. Now, I think some questions have to be asked about that, uh, And just in terms of one of the figures to add on top of that, um, it should be known that uh, in terms of the Tornado GR4 fleet, and this is figures I got from Air Command, the maximum sustainable deployment is six aircraft. The fleet is 134. So the maximum, the maximum sustainable number, deployable number of Tornado GR4s mm-hmm. is six. The total fleet is about 134. I think questions have to be asked about um, that and, as and well. Th- there, are, there are issues here, and I will be deliberately provocative that someone needs to take uh, the Ryanair business model and needs to adapt it a wee bit to the RF fast jet fleet because um, there, is, there is something structurally wrong and, and to be fair, Eric, they, the army does actually deploy closer to eighteen and a half thousand. It may ju- just be nine thousand in Afghanistan. And other okay. operational commitments, so it's, yes, it's okay. a bit That's better. Fair than enough. That. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. But we have uh, Michael over Cameron. this issue of decay. What you've actually seen um, in the last ten, fifteen years indeed, is uh, is a. a, a enormous amount of attempts at reform, uh, certainly in the acquisition side, in the way capabilities are delivered. You've had a lot of use of private finance, all of this. I mean, it has been absolute turmoil. In the middle of all of that, you've got got the big elephant, which is the one that Bernard Gray focused on, which is not fringe activities. For some who don't know about Bernard Gray last year. Uh, Bernard Gray was asked um, by the previous government, well, um, John Hutton, who was Secretary of State at the time, to do a completely independent um, review of uh, specifically acquisition but it related to the entire way that the Ministry of Defence operates Um, and he was someone associated with the 1998 review so he's not completely independent in that sense but um, what you've got is um, the central structure of the Ministry of Defence which is which uh, is reluctant to actually incorporate the change that it needs to do and take it forward. I mean, that's where this government, uh, I think, is going to try and focus, but it will be very difficult. We come back to this point um, that this defence reviewer, um, I don't mean he'll get away with it, but people are expecting an enormous amount from this defence view because they've been talking about the need for one for a long time. And when people talk about the need for something it suggests that there are perceived failures in the previous reviews. Oh, I, th- I think you can say that. And coming back to the quote from Chatham House, the, say the in- especially organisational and intellectual delay, I would say one of the starting points, which has slightly been touched upon by the Green Paper earlier this year, but yeah. again with reference back to the Air Power Conference last week, arguably I'd say one of the biggest problems in defence, especially for the RF and Navy, but increasingly the Army, is over at least the last 10 years, possibly 20, everyone spent their time benchmarking everything off the United States. And so, oh, the US has just had a strategic defence treaty. What have they said they're going to do? They've said they're going to do X. Great, we must do the same. Well, this is totally ignored, is that, funnily enough, the US budget is, oh, should we say 10 times, that, yeah. 15, 20 times bigger. You can't necessarily do what the Americans are doing, and just say, well, if we do it a bit smaller, we'll spend a bit less. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those problems, and again, the number of speakers at this Air Power Conference still talking about developing and fielding massive series of capabilities which all mirror US capabilities, and no one's saying the fundamental question, this isn't saying we cut ourselves off from America, by the way, is it actually value for money 
to be constantly benchmarking with a, a country which has ambitions and capabilities in finance terms way above us. I think the answer to that is simple. But we've still got, um, we've got something else here, and that is that we're not simply talking about 18,000 of the 100-odd thousand um, army is actually deployed. We're not talking about, what was you said, seven... Uh, oh, six tornado GR4s, six, GR4s, sustainably deployable. OK, we're not just talking about that. We're talking about uh, one of the biggest single employers in the country. True. We're talking about probably, uh, an engineer was saying the other day, that he's in the industry, and he said, we are probably the last, uh, but still the biggest, of defence manufacturing, but actually metal bashing. We are the mm-hmm. biggest engineer groups. He said, we've got far too many engineers and scientists, perhaps people say, working for us. But that's the size of it, and that's part of what the review's going to look at. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, the the bit of manufacturing, which everyone seems to agree is important, or has agreed in the past is important, is defence manufacturing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, know, manufacturing other things has not got support. (coughs) But having a a, 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 a significant home-produced defence industry for warships, for aeroplanes, and so on, uh, armoured vehicles, has been considered to be important. Now, that is... an export too. Yes. But, I mean, th- there are there are two aspects to this. On the one hand, there is, there is the contribution to the economy of, of defence industries, and that's very significant. But I think economists would say it's it's not as it were essential in the longer term. The other is um, is uh, being able to get equipment yourself without being dependent on other countries and the autonomy that implies. Now, this is something that very much relates to where we see ourselves as a nation in the world because we could be if we were a normal nation like many smaller West European nations um, we could buy off the shelf without worrying about it quite so much. Or wouldn't bother to buy. Or wouldn't bother to buy but if we the stuff we need and there are a lot of noble countries that do a lot of stuff overseas um, without having huge defence industries of their own. Slightly going off this though but do we buy because of that special relationship with America I don't because I come back to the one of the benchmarking again especially the RAF believe that if you want to be um, interoperable with the Americans you have to be the Americans mm-hmm. you have to be a clone um, I asked a question at the conference of the commander of the U.S. forces, Southwest Asia, who'd been talking about commanding an amazing coalition, said, would you want everyone to turn up with the same kit or would you want them to have the same uh, tactics, techniques and procedures? He went, oh, TTPs, yeah. I said, I wouldn't want them to have the same kit. That message went down like a mm, cup of cold stuff with the RAF guys who still want to buy American at every stage. But there's another side of this, and that isn't in 1982, 80, no, 83... Who succeeded? Um, yes, it was 83 that Michael Heseltine succeeded John Knott, wasn't it, as Defence Secretary? Mm-hmm. And the first thing that somebody said to him when he went to a... Um, uh, what, I can't remember, it's called... A, a pro, um, um, one of those groups that buy things in Europe. Eurogroup. Uh, mm-hmm. No, it was something else. Anyway, a uh, programme group, that's right. Yes, the independent European... IPG, Inter- the independent European programme yeah, group. Yeah, and they said to him, for example, if you want to, if you want to replenish at sea... Uh, it could be that the guy that's coming alongside you can't stick the hose in the same slot, and etc. And he said, this is crazy, why can't we do something about it? And they said, because I can't remember how many navies he said this would, in, in Stanef or Chan that would have to change them completely. That was the size of the problem. I talked to him the other day. He says nothing's changed. Well, um, I'm not, not strictly sure that's no, true. That true. true. Um, just, for example, the fleet tanker yeah. I saw down at Plymouth supporting the... Um, 
uh, training with yeah. uh, flag officer training is actually a Dutch tanker, mm. and the previous one was an Italian tanker. I think there's a lot uh, of this has happened for decades. Yeah. I mean, interoperability is issue. Yes. The interoperability standards that NATO, part of NATO's enduring use is in providing those standards, and it's done that pretty well. But if we're on tankers, tankers actually are a very interesting example because we were going to order some nice, modern, double-skinned tankers, and they were going to be built abroad. In fact, the South Koreans were going to build them, and when it came to the order, the government ran a mile because it did not want to be seen to be spending money on foreign ships for the Navy. It was worried about it. And, that's a, and that really is a bullet that has to be bitten. Well, that's actually, they could have been really clever, and it's, again, a sign of... Um, you talk about the uh, quote of uh, organisational, bureaucratic, bureaucratic and intellectual delay. Why someone hadn't said to South Koreans, let's do a deal. You buy X off us, we'll buy ships off you. Believe you me... Just to win the order of we have sold ships, the Royal Navy, you know, I know it's the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, yeah. South Koreans would have said, tell us what you want to sell They're us. Gagged and bitten our arms. Yes. But the shipping industry has been, um, in, to some extent, unique in being one that, the, over military sales, the government has, right. has defended and protected in a way that the United true. Kingdom has less than most other European and Americans in protecting their defence industries. Mm. They've certainly protected shipping. Very much so. Yeah, because for warships. For, for warships. For, warships. Or for all sorts. Mm. Do you remember it was BA Systems who was with the South Koreans for their tanker bid? Yes. So. Yeah. Mm. OK. Not enough money going around. The... Um, we come, we come, therefore, if you start talking about procurement, we start talking about policy. If there is such a thing as defence policy, I don't say that cynically, because I often wonder how difficult it is to actually have a sustainable policy. But the imbalance between that government's so-called defence policy, the defence procurement programme, and how hard you are at the time, and as uh, Francis was saying earlier, eventually it's about money, and pretty soon it's about money, it makes the whole thing unremarkable, doesn't it? Well, um, yes, the, the total it's not much. You, and what I'm saying is not a huge amount you can do, except organisationally. Well, uh, and actually getting people to wake up, and this is the thing that came out of the Grey Report, is everyone recognised there was a problem. Not just one problem, huge problems. And yet the so-called solution was to ignore it and carry on as normal. Actually, not just carry on as normal, was, you know, the things we're doing at the moment that are totally illogical... Let's do them even faster. <laughs> and so that the imbalance in the budget, which was uh, basically about 20, 25 billion spread over the lives of the programme, increased by 15 billion in two years. Mm. So that really is the one of, I'm ill, uh, I'm an alcoholic, I know what I'll do, I'm going to buy some more gin. And that's basically what yeah, happened. So the imbalance, the, the degree to which someone has got to shine an incredibly powerful light into the darkest corners of Abbey Wood and highlight some of the absurd behaviours. <laughs> the problem is, at the moment, the defence for them is, if we, as a service, doesn't matter, Army, Navy, Air Force, if yeah. we start behaving sensibly, the other two services will take it's us gross. apart. In which case, we can't behave sensibly. We've still got to behave stupidly. That's that a very even good happened point. With, a, with a particular programme that I, I know about, which is a joint programme for helicopter training. They're still behaving in a ridiculous way, even though it's a joint Sub, uh, Hang on, who is behaving? Well, I think that the, the, the MOD, in its widest sense, yeah. are allowing uh, procedures and ideas to be floating around and allowing a culture, really, of producing something that you and I could produce off the back of a fag packet in five minutes, which is working out how, for example, we have joint helicopter training and, we have, and the programme is going to take 14 years to, 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 to come to fruition, which is longer than it took the Americans from announcing they were going to go there to landing on the moon. 
It's a very good point. Mm. Okay, listen, um, it's a curiosity here. Um, is, it is, a, is it an assumption or a presumption that defence, MOD, should be regarded as a special case in Whitehall? Anybody? Well, I think that defence is, is, is the primary job, job of government. That is true. So it is very important. If, if you were to do the one of could anyone else do it, you could look through the other uh, departments and say transport can be done by other people, education can be done by other people, health can be done by other people. Um, unless you want a very strange society, the um, licensing of force mm. on behalf of the government or that, on the people is one thing which is probably That different. is all very true and logical, and that's its big weakness. Yeah, because the because politically the government has committed itself to maintaining health spending and maintaining mm-hmm. education spending. Yeah, Michael, I'm, what I'm getting at far more is that we say, well, you've got to have defence. Now, a lot of people who will be out there listening when it's announced say, well, yes, but why are we spending all this money? And, 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 and this is the core of... We got into two wars that got unpopular. Yeah, this is the core of the issue. The money you need to spend on the defence... Uh, First of all, to protect the United Kingdom, overseas territories, and make a reasonable commitment to our allies so you've got enough to prevent big nations bullying and all of that. It's probably relatively modest. And I mentioned, sorry, as I mentioned earlier, it's the difference between that spending, uh, which you could say is absolutely core spending that any government ought to spend, and what you spend, uh, the additional money, which is the money that you spend because there is... A national perception of our status in the world that we're trying to protect and defend and substantiate and develop. And that's the difference. And that's not so easy to persuade um, the man in the pub. There are sick ways that you can do that and say, well, look, that's where the French are, where you, do you want to be. Uh, and it's interesting that the two countries are very similar in their approaches in this respect. That man in the pub, for example, doesn't realise that the MOD, very loosely, is tasked by foreign policy, i.e. the number 10 and the uh, FCO, Um, he has to battle, the Secretary of State for Defence has to battle the the Chief Secretary to the Treasury uh, for resources to to carry out that government policy. There again is the great sort of difficulty which public won't begin to understand, not because public is stupid, but they say, well, you know, Explain that a bit more. Technically, or formally, you might say it's tasked by foreign policy, but the perceptions of diplomats in the last ten years has been that much foreign policy has been driven by government using the military, and that's what shaped foreign policy. John Cole's book of not that long ago said Britain doesn't have foreign policy in the sense of vision where it's trying to take the nation to somewhere in the future. It has a policy that fixes things, that that sorts problems as they occur. And in that sense, of course, you don't have a foreign policy that's going to lead um, a, a military strategy which needs to look much further ahead. It's got to look 20 years ahead because it takes a long time to build the capabilities and a very short time to lose them. Yeah, and, and Donald Rumsfeld in 73-74, when he was the permanent rep at uh, NATO, was saying exactly this sort of thing mm. about Britain. And he was saying, well, Britain really doesn't actually have foreign policy now. Um, you know, it's lost its ideas of foreign policy, and we'll sort you out there. Not sure it ever did, actually, did it? I no. mean, you look back to how the empire was formed, you knew better than I, Christopher. <laughs> a bit of absence of mind? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we come back to something else here, and that is we're going to have a review. We still don't know how it can be implemented. 
Is that part of the task of the review to make something which is symbols that you can actually make it work? Or is it people to say, that is the review, now go and make it work? Um, I, th- I think they end up saying, here are some lovely ideas now, I don't want to be the person who has my dabs on this when people start screaming, so I'm going to walk quietly away. That would be um, a basic sort of betrayal. I think it would be far better if you see something in the same sort of uh, shade as the Grey Review. The Grey Review didn't just identify where everything was going wrong. It then laid out, and this is how to get it right. The fact that um, initially the gasps were... uh, The gasp that his solutions were as heavy as the gasp of the uh, situation he was describing. Ultimately, everyone, the then government and then the both uh, opposition parties who are now the current government, said they would accept every single one of his recommendations for implementation bar one, which um, I think if you were going to have a model for SDSR, Strategic Defence and Security Review, it doesn't just say we think this is the idea, it should say and this is where you should be going and this is the timetable you should be doing it in. Otherwise you're just saying well you've got a brilliant document, you then have to set up another committee to look at the implementation and they will take six to eight months to work out whether the Navy reform plan takes a year, two years, five years and you drift. I think think the Hang on a minute, can we we go back to this February past because the nearest we got then in government policy to saying this is not what we're going to do but these are the questions that should be raised about this defence review were in that February uh, green paper and I just picked out the six the six main points that the green paper picked out can we just whip through them quite quickly because I want to start to go into the individual services shortly I'll read them up very quickly what approach should we take if we employ the armed forces to address threats at a distance does that make sense? Yes, because it means we address threats at a distance and we don't just sit in Britain and wait for people Mm -hmm. to come to us. And also a degree of scale and force. Mm. So you could say it is recognising the thing that ultimately, even if you're talking about the comprehensive approach, if the armed forces cannot deliver force, then you have ruled out some significant uh, areas of defence. Being expeditionary costs money by about a factor of ten. Michael, what contribution, says the Green Paper, or asks, what contribution should the armed forces make and ensuring security and contributing to resilience within within the UK. I think this is um, this is an extremely interesting question. One where the Conservatives initially. Uh, um, indicated they were refocusing more on this being an obligation that's not something that the military does when it's not busy elsewhere. But because you need... A, a Territorial su- defence. You need something. It's not only that. It's, 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 it's the foot and mouth. Really it's the floods flood, and all of that. Castle, um, and and contributes to, ter- to, to terrorism. That this is the only organisation that you can sustain sensibly um, to deal with things that may not happen very often but require a very rapid reaction with huge uncertainty. Um, and these are all the skills that the military have and whether this should be part of the core that you, you have to build before you start exploring what you're going to be doing overseas. And just linked to that, of course, is that we do have an archipelago around the world of islands that belong to us, and we've got to think of those. So that means that you're going to have to have some expeditionary capability, and you've got to be able to pull British people out of crisis, civilians out of crisis, because we're a big enough country to do that for ourselves. We have help. historical obligations and to go and get them as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, um, and you put all that together, you've got um, quite a big homeland issue and also, of course, um, uh, you've got some expeditionary capability that you're going to need. The question is whether you develop that into something that can serve other wider interest purposes or whether you go down a sort of different route. And 
create an expeditionary force that's rather separate from that general logic. It becomes quite popular as well. I was talking to an MP, asked him, did he know, because he was thinking of asking the question in the House, how much did it cost to send the Navy down to get people from Spain when the um, the aircrafts were grounded because of the uh, ash from... Well, probably uh, not very much. Yes. And I said, did you ask? And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said it was such a popular thing to do. Mm-hmm. It did, it, also pick up, um, it did pick up people coming back yeah. who were from, yeah. Afghanistan, back from Afghanistan. Actually, so, yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. only the cost of the fuel. You've got them anyhow. Yeah, exactly. yeah but, no, but the, his, no, his point wasn't that, that it would, be, it would sound churlish if he asked because it was such a popular thing to do. Whereas quite often, uh, main, I mean, where people will line the streets on sadly a wooden basset, the, the war that the people were sent to will not be applauded, will not be saluted and that is another problem surely for uh, at this time for a defence review which since 2003 people are a bit not quite sure that we ought to have the expenditure that we do have because they don't want us to have the commitment necessarily. That is one of the differences. Well Afghanistan was tainted by Iraq I mean Iraq was a very yeah. unpopular war and the trouble is a lot of people think of Afghanistan as being kind of extension of Iraq even though it's a rather it's a rather different operation, but, but, a very different operation. But, but, the, but the close relationship between the two is that we weren't in Afghanistan except for our initial mm. um, venture. Enduring. We went into Afghanistan in part to support the United States who were too busy in Iraq and that's where we find ourselves yeah. um, uh, with the whole problem of embroilment because the situation wasn't properly yeah. understood. The question it's just like it reinforces yeah. the thing of benchmarking yeah. and this raises yeah. another point Chris has got further down in terms of just uh, defence and security relationships mm. rebalancing. Um, OK, you can get very um, trite on this and say it's the uh, love actually moment of the Prime Minister saying, you know, we will be a stern uh, ally. But actually, should the UK be de facto at every stage saying, we're with you, we'll ask about it later? Um, if you were to look at security relationships, I would just query when people say, well, where would you go? And the answer is, well, look at who we are with in Helmand province. We are with, or not just Helmand, sorry, the regional command, mm. south-south-west, the Canadians, funnily enough, Commonwealth country as well, Australians, Commonwealth country, New Zealanders, Commonwealth country, but then Danes, who have done extraordinary things down there, Netherlands, equally good, and then maybe quite a small deployment, but Estonians and other Balts. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting, again, I'm not saying, ditch the Americans, let's go and work with the Lithuanians for the future, <laughs> but there are a lot of security relationships we They're could develop. Partners, aren't they? And actually, you look at the Netherlands landing mm. force with sure. the Royal Marines, which yeah. I'm sure Julian has great experience of. We have had these relationships for a long time. Likewise, at sea, Royal Navy warships are under French command, what, twice a year on operations and vice versa. I think sometimes people think that this is revolutionary. It's actually, in the best sense, mundane, but we could be developing it. OK, yeah, let's have a look it. at the services, shall we? I mean, we've had the, that's, all that is the politics and the strategic studies, etc. Um, what sort of... Uh, what do we think the RN is going to look like uh, uh, after this, or in fact, what it should it look like? Uh, Michael, as a former naval person, well, I'm probably not the best person um, Therefore to on this subject because um, I, I cover all the services in my my work. But it depends very much on the hard choice. Well, it should depend very much on the hard choice. Um, what it's likely to do is that we're going to get um, sort of salami slicing in, in, as far as the navy is concerned. But if you take the hard choice between developing 
an expeditionary capability which moves you one stage on from Afghanistan, which is essentially land-based and land-focused, which provides considerable influence globally but with a risk of embroilment, or it's something that's more focused on what I, the term I've used, it's not a new one, I have to say, mm. strategic raiding, which is more maritime-focused, where there's more argument for the carriers, or at least for large um, sea-basing capability. It doesn't actually necessarily have fixed wing on it. It could have UAVs, but um, uh, 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 which it, it allows you to be more tentative uh, and do more different things more flexibly with less risk of embroilment, but there is less global influence associated with that. I mean, that's the choice. If it goes down one route, then it's pretty clear that you, you need um, some big platforms. Um, the question is you how... You need the two platforms that we all talk about. Well, there are others. There's also the um, amphibious ships, the amphibious ships ocean and all of that. The two LPDs. The amphibious ships are already paid not The LPH may not be replaced as an LPH. It could be a secondary role for one of the two. And you can build areas. some of those things quite cheaply. Well, just coming back Francis. to the points Eric made, which I think perhaps then reinforces um, what's being said on the Navy, and it's just the whole thing of, em well, embroilment. If the public are happy with the idea of having large deployed footprints around the world for operations, then that will lead us more, down, not totally, but more down the line of those assets for both the Navy and the RAF, which will enable and support that. If, on the other hand, and I agree entirely on the one as we're raiding if people are saying you know what in the future 10 15 20,000 army just for the sake of argument deployed doing something long term i don't want to see this then you have if you if you want to see more of a role in the world then the spending will go more towards and i, I know the army won't like hearing this more towards the navy and the air force yeah. for those things that will allow you to do quick missions and then not have to deploy a big footprint somewhere at all um, and this I, whether we go back for want of an expression to the 18th century and uh, stay at sea and occasionally pop a few marines on shore to beat people up I know that's an exaggeration but I think it's the sort of thing we're looking at whether we believe we will be doing Julian this is con this is sort of almost contradicts everything that the army is saying at the moment isn't sure. it and, and also it does but then they are pinning their whole case on the next wars are all going to be like Afghanistan, which I totally find incredible in the true sense of the word. And, and they don't know. Argument. I don't think they're winning that argument. And they're not winning it all. I don't I, think I, any I, government will get involved in an Afghanistan in the future if I, they can I, possibly avoid it. I think that's a bit unfair. They're, 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 uh, the expectation is that we will require uh, land forces to uh, operate around the world in all sorts of different ways, and that the situations they're going to have to operate in are going to be very complicated. They're what we old days call complex Okay, Francis, tell me, um, what do you think the army would look like at the end of this? Um, the issue about the army is the scale on which it operates. Mm. At the moment it is operating, um, especially if you look at the Harmony Guidelines, when people are away, the phrase is extremely hot. Um, if the review is sensible, rather than starting from the point of view, they always normally start. Infantry battalions, armoured regiments, artillery regiments. If there is any sense, here's hoping... They will turn it around and they will look at Royal Logistic Corps regiments, they will look at Royal Engineer regiments, signals, medics, then look at transport aircraft and shipping and say, what do these enable us, what would they allow us to deploy sustainably? Believe you me, if you do that, you come up with a very, very different calculation than if you look at the I-must-have 35 infantry battalions, and this is me speaking as a former infantry officer, if you start that one, you get ultimately unsupportable forces. Does the army think this way? Um, I think you're starting to find enough people coming up who realise they've got to start thinking in a different way. 
Um, you're seeing more flexibility with rolling and, and so forth. Um, I think one of the worries is when, alongside the army doing the it's all about Afghanistan, that's all it's about, and at the same time they say there will never be any use for tanks above troop level, there is no role for self-propelled artillery, and coming up with this sort of uh, must, capital letters probably in sort of purple ink, green ink or something. Um, Not green. That, that's very, very dangerous because if there's one thing I think we can predict with certainty is we, we generically as a human race are absolutely useless at predicting the future. Mm. But the what is, yes. The issue of heavy armour and, and, um, and propelled artillery, etc., is very much um, what contribution we make to future coalitions. Um, we're not going to go into wars on our own with these things, I suggest. Sure, uh, but, and but whether this some of the is assumptions... A, whether this is a realistic contribution for the United Kingdom to make, uh, we've got it already, and that's a very good reason for keeping it. We've yes. also got the expertise and everything, but also there are an awful lot of other nations who are more... Um, would consider us as more dependent on these capabilities, particularly in Europe. Um, uh, and uh, one wonders whether it makes sense for the United Kingdom. What about the I'm not ruling it out. I'm just yeah. saying that that's, that's as part of the truth. What about the Royal Air Force? What's it going to look like? Eric. Fewer fast jets. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I agree. I mean, reduced numbers. I mean, uh, the, the, the uh, well, uh, presumably, if, if the carriers go forward, or even if they don't, perhaps, F-35... Well, the carriers are for the RF, aren't they? They are for the RAF, yes. F-35, well, it's for a, com- it's joint, for a joint force. Yes. That's, that's right. F-35s, uh, typhoons... Depending on those decisions. Yeah. Exactly. F-35s, typhoons, probably... A re- well, we heard this thing about the tornado force, but certainly I would have thought... Considerable reductions in the tornado force, but perhaps that's the wish becoming the reality. They are saying, they are saying it's going to be retired early. Yeah. Yes, that would make quite sense. a logical one of trying to get to as few aircraft types as possible, and at the same time accelerate the capabilities of Typhoon. That side incredibly sensible. Um, I mentioned the GR four numbers. Again, Chinook. Even though amazing things have been done to generate more Chinooks in operations, you will still see, according to the RAF or support, sorry, Joint Helicopter Command's own figures, after the extra twelve Chinooks get ordered, so we are up to a fleet then of fifty. Again, the sort of maximum sustainable number of Chinooks will be ten or eleven. Mm. Again, I would just say if this was a commercial air transport fleet... And ground and, and to keep them flying? Well, and th- well they, this is the problem. Um, if this was a commercial transport fleet and there are some compelling similarities, um, that business would go out of business quite quickly. These are the questions Someone has got to look at the whole thing of fourth generation. It is still a problem. People look at kit. When you say... And actually, the head of Joint Helicopter Command, who's Navy, um, has said, don't give me helicopters... Unless you give me, and the first thing you mentioned was the engineers to maintain mm. them, mm. the spare parts and the pilots and the hours to fly them. Unfortunately, and the training, and, and the training. Well, but unfortunately, people still do look at that. If the Royal, if Royal Air Force was sensible, it would maximise its air transport and support helicopter sides to the nth degree and make itself absolutely indispensable. Michael, uh, on the subject of aviation, one capability that spans the strategic choices, it would seem, is that you're going to need a. Cons- considerable helicopter force. The difference is how it's made up. It needs to reduce its numbers of types, and there's a plan to do that. Yeah. And, but whether they're more maritime capable or not are, are some of the hardest issues. But this, you're going to need a lot either way. Julian, um, let's come to special forces. Mm. Um, what's going to happen to them? Well, I think they'll remain. Um, as they are. As they are. And, and, and I know they might even actually get bigger, mm. because I hear a buzz that, that, that one para, which is almost SF, is going to go back to being ordinary guys, and they're going to raise another battalion, which will do the, the uh, 
special force um, support. I don't think that'll fly, personally, but I know that that's one of the things they're going to try. As a matter of interest, um, the Royal Marines, he says, produce out of only 3% of the total defence population, 34% of SF, badged SF. Hmm. So um, what I'm saying is what we want to go for is excellence, high training levels, and that is the way you get better work out of people and better results rather than uh, just say, cut this, cut that. Can I ask uh, reservists? Reservists, all we all seem to... Well, I think reservists are very important, and I think without them, we know, we know without them... Iraq has shown would, that. Exactly, and I think we... I've said it every time I've appeared, you've asked me that question, yes. we underplay our reserve capability, but, and we rarely... That's but not necessarily RAF and, and no, RN reservists. No. But there's an extra thing which we are still, in the UK, just getting to terms with, which is contractors. Yeah. Mm. And the issue of contractors... Anyone who thinks the UK let alone the United States, and this is recognised in the US, that the US could do major operations without contractors in the field, they can't. Mm. Mm. Um, and it is simply just not possible. And finally, people are now starting to talk at PJHQ of saying, why, and they do have some contractors mm. up there on liaison, but saying, why do we not have our key contractors at the earliest stage of military planning for Operation X? Because we will have to turn to them at time Y to deliver the thing they're contractually required to do. And so the, the reservist picture, um, reservist TA or equivalent as we've always had, Sponsored reservists, which are growing in importance, so halfway between TA and contractors, that, the and the then contractors. contractors. Uniform, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I, I, that's one of the important ones that the contractor slash sponsored reservist side on the reservist absolutely vital, and I think people may end up in some shocked. ways. The uh, the RFA as a contractor it comes into that slot, yes. doesn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. it's government owned. So it's, yeah, so what, it's about, yeah. what about what um, about uh, some of the sort of uh, what I call the extra issues, the ones that we don't think much about sometimes? I was thinking about cyber defence. Um, well, the RAF are making a bid for that. That's absolutely mm -hmm. clear. In fact, it's been talked about for some time. Um, uh, when the Chief of the General Staff came up to Salford a few months ago, he said quite approvingly that, in fact, this, this, this could be a very good role for the RAF. OK. It's also a very good role for Tim Stevens at King's College London because he spends most of his time on cyber defence. Tim, um, where does this fit into a defence review? Well, that's a very good question, and I think... Um you know, there's an awful lot of toys out there that are available to the military, but the question really remains is what do you intend to do with them? Um, and it was very interesting, for example, just to hear your discussion about contractors and and the fact that the RAF, uh, which actually mirrors the um, the attempt by USAF in the States to, to, do, to get the cyber operational side of things uh, uh, in, in their house, but, I mean, uh, a lot of the expertise currently, even though the military has plenty, a lot of the expertise does lie in the private sector, and that's another issue of how you bring the private sector into this debate. Does it come into this um, C4I star uh, idea that you can, you can, everything is now linked? That at one time you just sort of had C3, but now you've got everything bolted onto it. Yes, um, I, th I think one of the common complaints you will hear is, is, is about situational awareness. Um, and with respect to cyber, uh, certainly recently in the U.S., the, 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 the new head of Cyber Command saying, listen, we have zero situational awareness. Um, and as a result of last year's cybersecurity strategy um, from June 2009, um, the government has charged um, a new unit 
to be based at GCHQ with generating exactly the sort of situational awareness for cyberspace that not only intelligence agencies, um, but civil agencies, um, private industry, and, of course, the military will require to operate in that space. But we, it, 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 it's almost what you're saying is that it's something which uh, that Britain, for once, isn't ignoring, isn't just playing catch-up. That's correct. I mean, when the, when the cybersecurity strategy, which affects all sectors, came out last year, one of the complaints from certain uh, members of parliament was... Um, you're not doing enough, you're ignoring it, uh, to which the correct rejoinder was, actually, we're doing an awful lot about it. Um, just a lot of what we're doing isn't particularly public. Um, so I do think that the UK is, has its finger on the button with this one. OK, Tim Stevens, thank you very much indeed. Um, I, I wonder if we also get into the area of, uh, not green warfare, but green issues in a defence review. I think you have to bear in mind, and Eric would be better on this, the whole thing of Marpol, um, our tankers and so forth, not mm -hmm. being single-hulled. Exactly. Um, you have not been able to dump waste at sea, so you have to design huge waste-compacting things. It's kind of remember you'd know on QE2 class how big these are meant to be. They're huge. Yeah, they are, actually. That, that's right. And, and, in fact, much was made, you know, much has been made in, 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 in statements about, you know, the impact of climate change. The official assessment seems to be it's not going to be directly affecting Britain, but it might affect other things which might create crises for expeditionary capability. My opinions on climate change I've expressed in this programme before. I'm not going to go into them again. Thank goodness but, for that. But, no, listen, is, but, but it could be an issue. Listen, um, um, it's... What about the future stuff? I'm thinking robotics. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not actually future, that's here now. Uh, and I think... Can you, can you classify a drone as robotics? Yeah, not... Well, sort of. Uh, sort of. But where are we with that in something like a defence review? Uh, there's an important spectrum here. I mean, the, the <coughs> issue at the moment is, is unmanned, remotely piloted systems and all of that. Um, more and more in the future, it's going to be autonomous systems, robots who can think for themselves, as it were. And it's, it's the progress from, from now to that, um, in, in part in um, how these are perceived morally and all the legal issues in relation to them, which are the problems. Um, then they don't need to be problems if we think ahead. <laughs> they're, they're problems if the capabilities arrive and it's not been thought through who's <laughs> responsible for using them. It's like having a sniffer dog, you know, it's, it's and a it bites someone. Mm. <laughs> it's a major discriminator between um, European nations and the US. The US mm. is ready in the next three years to deploy armed... Uh, autonomous ground vehicles to do searching at uh, roadblocks. Mm. Um, I think especially, bearing in mind we are doing this after the release of the uh, Bloody Sunday report and sort of the implications of legal uh, matters, I think especially in the UK we are a long, long way away from that one, just about the concerns of what would happen, who's responsible. The other thing that um, we, we get to, and this I suppose is, is the way of wrapping this up, uh, at the centre of this is Britain trying to decide where it wants to be during the next 30, 40 years. Uh, can it do that, Michael? It's certainly not been very good at doing that in the past. Um, and, and, and not necessarily... Um, to, um, that's not necessarily a criticism because the United Kingdom has been pretty good and is respected uh, uh, as a nation that does make sensible judgments in, in reaction to events around it. And vision isn't necessarily a good thing. We can see some dreadful examples of But can of it make these decisions when it is part of 
the North Atlantic Alliance, that it has a so-called special relationship. But that's all part of it. In mm. a that's sense, all that's, part all part of of, that's all part of Britain's position in the world. But and that the, doesn't then complicate... Well, actually, it, no, in some respects, I think it makes things easier because, yeah. because, you know, you can be the special friend of the United States. You can argue the extent of that or whether you get mm. benefits from that. You can be a lead member of the EU, which even with the... Well, which with, which with the, the Lib Dems in the government is still important. Uh, so... Britain sees itself as playing a major role in the world in cooperation, in, in alliance with other countries, but still sees itself as a global power. It still sees British security as being tied up with what happens on a, on a globalised scale. And despite all the efforts to withdraw to Europe in NATO, it sees that as continuing to be important. Quick thought here, therefore. If we're talking about this future ideas of where we want to be... Um, I don't see that we've done that. So how can we have a defence review, Francis? <coughs> well, at one level, uh, again, looking, looking at the future and saying what are going to be the threats, the answer is you can't tell. Therefore, coming back to the certainties, I would say you can look historically and say that in most cases, when we have had generally capable, balanced forces, and it is quite easy to define what that means, we have been able to cope with most, not all, of the unexpected, and if we're going to see something over the next, uh, from a review, looking ahead, it is trying to work out that going for the toppest end capabilities across the board, we can't afford it today. Let's recognise this now and work out the key areas, multi-purpose areas we can operate. Uh, and then it was Admiral Jim Eberly who said, quite often we expect to fight the second 11, not the first 11. Julian, as the end user on so many occasions, do these reviews work? They sometimes do, but the not review is a very good example of where it was got wrong and, and capabilities are going to be cut out, and therefore we were not able to do what Francis has just said because we didn't have a... or we wouldn't have had a balanced force. Although that was turned round before the Falklands War to some extent. Yeah, right. To some extent. Anyway, to some extent we're going, actually, now. Um, Michael Codner, um, Eric Grove, Francis Tusa, Julian Thompson. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. Uh, listen then. Bye now. Sit with Christopher Lee.